Healthcare is changing, and our goal for the Making Healthcare podcast is to capture and share the stories of innovators and disruptors who are shaping the future of healthcare today. They're making healthcare safer, making healthcare affordable, making healthcare innovative. I am David Park, CEO of VirtuSense Technologies and the host of Making Healthcare. Today's guests took a unique path to leading healthcare. Dan DiStefano is a former television writer whose credits include Fat Albert, ALF, G.I. Joe, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He is now the administrator of Burlington Convalescent Hospital in Los Angeles and the author of Where's My Mother's Leg, a dark humorous novel about life in a skilled nursing facility. Welcome to Making Healthcare, Dan. Uh, good morning, and yes, it's terrific to be here. Well, Dan, you and I have talked, and um, like I got a tiny glimpse of your life, and it is a fascinating journey. And I like to start off by you know where it all began. Just where does the name Di Stefano come from? Oh, it's uh, and it's Italian name. Uh, my parents were like part of the immigrant rush at about 1900 uh, that came on over my grandparents. And uh, that's another interesting thing. Um, the story goes that my grandfather was in line behind somebody, couldn't speak a word of English. And the guy in front of him said whatever the answer was. And he said to Stefano, and he figured that was the answer. So the truth is, I'm not really sure that is my last name, but we've been using it now for two generations. (laughs) But that's the truth. We're we're not true. And I understand uh, that there were twin brothers. One came to America and the the other one went to Brazil. So I have like a whole family in South America that I have no idea, you know, who or what these people are. But that's that's uh, been fun. That's excellent. So your parents are from the old country. What about you? Where were you born? Um, I was born in Middletown, Connecticut. Um, and, okay. and is that where you grew up? That's where I grew up. Then I went to, um, I spent, Middletown, Connecticut is a town that's full of Italians. And uh, it's, a, it's you know, uh, again, I'm going to digress for a second here. Uh, Barnum and Bailey uh, was stationed in Bridgeport, Connecticut. That's where they wintered. And he went around the world looking for interesting people to put in his show, like the little midget and the bearded lady and whatever. And there was a man named Frank Lentini and Frank had three legs. And this is the truth. You can look it up. And he hired Frank Barnum and uh, PT Barnum hired Frank to be an attraction Middletown is not terrible, about 50 miles from Bridgeport. He came to Middletown, settled, little by little brought cousins, relatives, friends over. And there are more people from Malili, Sicily in Middletown than there are now in Malili, Sicily. So that's how my family wow. got here. <laughs> So tell me more about your parents. What did they do while you were growing up in Middletown, Connecticut? Uh, my my mother was uh, an assistant in the in a high school where I where I went. My father was a plumber, and um, 
I, I, li- I grew up in the 50s when you didn't have a key to your house and mm. people, it was a very different world. Uh, some things were better. Some things were not as good, but it was uh, I, the beave and I, if you know about the beaver, he, yes, he and absolutely. I, <laughs> he and I had kind of the same lifestyle and <laughs> the world really didn't change until uh John Kennedy was assassinated, and that was the first major change in the world that I saw. Okay, so you okay you identify yourself with you know the Beaver, um, and you grew up into fifties. What are some of the more vivid childhood memories that you have? Um, the, the next book that I'm writing uh, is is about growing up in that time, and I was um, put in charge of my sister. She was three years younger than I was. And it was growing up in the fifties was, was kind of nice because you did, you knew everybody. And, and the town I came from was about 40,000 people and you couldn't really get in too much trouble. The cops knew who you were and where you lived. And no matter what you did, they kind of took care of you. It was really uh, it, it was really a good time. The, the, the most interesting memories that I have is it, my sister and I used to jump on a train. The train mm. used to come around the bend and slow down and we would get on the, and we did this almost every day. We would get on the caboose because there was nobody in the caboose. The thing was going maybe five miles an hour. We would then steal all the flares that were in the caboose <laughs> and, and then we would jump off <laughs> and then we would melt pennies on the railroad tracks that was we thought the coolest thing in the world to make a penny turn into a bubble of copper with a uh, with a flare and of course all the winter stuff that we did you know we used to block off the streets and sled down in the winter time uh, it was that was just fun it was a whole different kind of world really was right right and i can kind of identify with a little bit of that because you know I, when i married my wife she grew up in a town of five thousand in central illinois and that community basically takes care of each other they know whenever you grow up you know like we saw so-and-so the other day and he was doing with so-and-so so um i, I understand a slice of that and uh you know it's interesting how you know your life is just kind of discovering the world around you and i think that's one thing that um, we're missing a bit of, um, these days because our lives are so busy. Our kids are so structured and rigid, but the way you describe your childhood of, you know, um, playing along the railroads and burning copper, melting copper, um, I'm sure that has a part of who you are, uh, this day, but, um, as you grew older and you entered high school, what are some of your interests? I was always interested in television, um, and in theater arts. And um, after I got out of college, I, I came out to California uh, to get into show business. And I was lucky enough when I was at uh, in grad school at UCLA to uh, get a job. My first job was with Bill Cosby doing Fat Albert. Um, and okay. I, yeah, hey, 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 you know, I That's mean, right. <laughs> it was fun. I really didn't know that the job 
was with Bill Cosby. It was kind of a generic, would you like to apply for a position in children's programming? And it turned out to be Bill Cosby. And that completely changed the trajectory of my whole life. Uh, I never I never finished my master's degree. I went on uh, to spend the next 25 years writing television. Yeah. So, um, Dan, I know you, I want to discuss your book, Where's My Mother's Leg, uh, which is based on your experience and observation in skilled nursing facility. Absolutely. We'll discuss that a little bit later. But, you know, can you share what can you share about your time in the entertainment industry that's um, humorous or anything that's like, oh, I did not know that something that our listeners would enjoy? <laughs> um, when I was writing Fat Albert, this is a long time ago. We, the way we would do it, I was in charge of, I was the story editor on the show and um, we would submit the stories that Fat Albert was going to do for the next season. And um, they had to be approved by the CBS executives. Um, we then submitted a story because somebody, somebody's relative had died. And we said, why don't we have a show where Fat Albert deals with death? And that was, we, oh my God, you can't do that. Well, let's try it anyway. So we went to the meeting and I'm not going to mention any names, but there was a lady that was in charge of our division. And we would, I would have to go speak with her about whatever it is we were going to do or try to do. And uh, she, she used to smoke. Uh, cigarettes that were clove cigarettes and she was very high stylish and very this and very that and i remember saying to her we want to do a show where where fat albert and company have to deal with somebody dies um and i remember she took a big long drag out of her cigarette and she said darling people do not die on saturday morning so <laughs> <laughs> we said i'll tell you what uh, we'll write the script because they used to pay us in step deals. And if you, if you accept it, fine. If you don't like the script, uh, my producer said, we'll eat the cost of it. So uh, that, I mean, there are hundreds of those kind of situations where I found myself, uh, in show business there, there was, um, what, what did you to finish the story? Did you end up having death on Saturday morning? We're talking about the con that. Yeah, idea? yeah, we ended up doing the story, and we wow. must have got. Um, they they accepted it. Uh, the producer had to go to bat, uh, and they said, "Look, give us a shot with this." Well, you know, it's controversial. You know, all that kind of stuff. Give us a shot. So we right. did it. We ended up getting about ten thousand letters. Gee, I didn't know how to tell little Susie that uncle buddy died. And we, what does that mean? And we did the, all that in the, uh, in the episode. And it was, uh, so it's 10,000 letters of support saying, thank you very much. Oh, yeah. And it helped us start Help, the conversation. Yeah. That's great. And we were, uh, we may have been the first one that ever dealt with death on Saturday morning, uh, because they just didn't, you know, there were so many things you didn't do. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> I can, I can see it from her perspective, but you know, that's, so you're a pioneer. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you've been leading the the Burlington Convalescent Hospital in Los Angeles for 10, 15 years now. So can you tell me, um, how did you make the transition from the entertainment industry 
to um, healthcare? Well, like I said, I was retired uh, young from show business, and I met I met a guy in Starbucks, literally, and he said. Um, we had a long chat and I said with him, I, I just started to sit down. I really didn't know who he was. And, but I just started to talk and I said, you know, I'm young. I don't know what to do with myself. I've got to do something. And then he said, do you want to be, uh, you want to come to work for me? And I said, well, what is it you do? And he said, I run a chain of sniffs. And as God is my witness, my, my answer was, I don't want to be in the cocaine business. And <laughs> he laughed just the way you did. And he said, no, 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 it's skilled nursing facilities. I said, I don't know anything about skilled nursing. He said, well, you learn. You're obviously a smart guy. And I said, okay. And um, it was either that or I was up for a job in the fashion industry, which if you saw the way I dressed, you would know that would be a mistake. So uh, I went with the skilled nursing, and it is a much more difficult business uh, than show business. It's a it, you know it's a tough tough business um, from the human end of it. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I I've in show business, you know, they hate your work or they love your work. Uh, but we're dealing in life and death, uh, in, in the nursing home business. It's, it's tough, but I got in it and I've been doing it now 15 years and it's a very rewarding situation. It really is. Excellent. Well, tell us about Burlington Convalescent. Burlington is in, uh, Koreatown in los angeles all right for your listeners i'm, I'm korean so oh <laughs> and yeah we call it k-town out here and uh it is in the heart of the downtown area if uh, those are the folks that know the los angeles area and of course we have uh, a homeless population that is out of sight, you know. So most of my patients until recently have been homeless folks. And um, we would take them in, you know, the, the way it works in skilled nursing is you don't take them in off the street. They go to an acute hospital first. They're diagnosed with a reason that they have to go to skilled nursing. They come to skilled nursing and there they are. Um, for a lot of skilled nursing facilities, uh, like the one I I ran was the uh, before this one was Beverly Hills Rehab, and I used to say it was the place the movie stars went to die, but it was a very different clientele. But when I went to Burlington, um, I dealt with people that you know had no homes. Um, they were the bottom rung of the, of, of the ladder and, you know, and, uh, it, it's been a, a very, it's tough, but it's a very rewarding situation personally for me. How do you think that we can provide housing and care for those people who are like a third of our population that you mentioned? What's, what's the solution? Um, depending on, um, the acuity of the patient, uh, there can be an interim step. And I think that's primarily what's going to happen. There's going to be right now, there are the acute hospitals, 
then there is skilled nursing. I think there is another step below that right now. Uh, there is it, it, it's, but it's you have to pay for it out of your pocket. Uh, uh, but I think the government is going to have to come in and provide this kind of situation. I know in Los Angeles, they're always talking about, oh, we're going to build housing for the homeless people. You know, I'll be 150 years old before that happens. It's just too, <laughs> it's too much yeah. of a political football uh, to deal with. So I, I think just like the economics of the acute hospital kind of invented skilled nursing uh, because we do everything uh, but operations, uh, you know, and I, I don't have a subacute unit, but I think eventually there's going to be people in subacute and those usually are people on trachs uh, and hardcore dementia people that can't, they can't function on their own. Um, but the people that can and, and just have some limited disabilities, I think there's going to be another step below. And of course, the best solution is to get them home if they have one. Um, but the, for the folks that don't have one, we're at Okay. So for the people who have a home, like if you look it out into the future in the next five years, all these external forces that are of change that's playing out, whether it's economic or competitive or technology, social, global, et cetera. How do you like, what do you see as the biggest force of change in your industry? That's going to have a huge effect in the next five years. Interestingly enough, um, COVID-19 is making us having to, to change things like crazy. We are now doing virtual doctor visits, uh, virtual psychologist visits. Um, in Japan, they have robots on the floor and uh, they, they even have robotic pets for dementia people. And that, COVID-19 has pushed all that forward. I think it was coming anyway, but we, you know, doctors don't come to the facility unless there's some sort of an emergency. Mm. So what they do is a virtual visit. I mean, we go around with an iPad and we put it, we put it in front of the patient and the patient, uh, you know, talks to the doctor and that's how it happens. And uh, it is a much more efficient way to do things. Uh, it saves a ton of money. Doctors don't have to you know, visit. Um, that's going to change. Of course, the, the tech, the technology and the, and the medications, they're changing constantly, but, uh, technology is really, uh, I think going to change, the world in, in my world, the, the healthcare world, I foresee in the not too distant future, it probably can be done right now. If you choose to live at home, well, they can wire your house. Uh, they can look at you in every room to see if you fell down or whatever you need. You can be wired up so that they're monitoring your, your heartbeat and your sugar level and all of this kind of stuff. And, 
just like you do with your house. You know, you can check on the babysitter and all that. Well, that that is an inevitable uh, reality uh, for the healthcare industry, especially for folks uh, that can be home and then have a home. In addition, the uh, the sidebars to that um, Grubhub will bring you a pizza, but there will be mm. a Grubhub that can adhere to a patient's diet. So if you are on Mechanical Soft or uh, Puree, they'll know this, and there'll be companies that bring meals on wheels, basically, but they'll be um, what they need to be for the patient. Um, it's a lot easier to have, <clears throat> excuse me, a nurse come by uh, three or four times a week to check on somebody or even three or four times a day if necessary. Um, so a lot of the things that we do in skilled nursing because of the technology can be transferred to the home setting. And, so it'll be going, uh, you'll be able to provide care beyond your own traditional walls and reach a, yes. a greater population. Okay. But then, I love that idea, is especially the fact that you'll be partnering with other providers like, say, Grubhub for food or, um, you know, Uber for transportation um, and some technology providers to connect, you know, be able to remote and see what's going on in the home to make sure the residents are safe. Love that vision of the future. But that said, where does that leave the traditional skilled nursing facility? Um, there will always be a need. Um, for patients that, first of all, are, you know, have advanced Alzheimer and dementia that need 24-hour care. Uh, there will always be a need for a, uh, for people on, you know, subacute that are, that are bedbound, that can't breathe on their own, or that have certain difficulties uh, that do not allow them to be in, in a safe environment in their home. Um, that isn't going to go away. That population, uh, the population overall of skilled nursing will reduce because a lot of folks can and will be able to go home, but there's always going to be a population of folks that need skilled nursing and there's just no way around. Who do you see, who do you see as taking the charge in that, uh, and that effort creating that world where you could provide, you could age in place in your home. So would you see that as more of the health system leading to charge, skilled nursing, the independent assisted living communities? Or is that more of the insurance companies? Who's going to lead that charge towards connecting everything and conveying everything? Honestly, you mentioned the insurance company because I'm, I'm sure there are bean counters somewhere that have figured out if we can keep people at home, it's going to save us a lot of money. and. The government will, is going to have to subsidize some of this because they're subsidizing all of skilled nursing. Uh, if you're a Medicare patient, you get 100 days. If you're a Medi-Cal patient, you get the rest of your life. Uh, it's, you know, and the average day, I would guess, in a skilled nursing facility is about $5,000 a month. Well, if the insurance company can see that they can make money and keep you home for $2,500, they're going to do that. Mm -hmm. And the government is going to have to step up. Right now, the missing 
the missing piece is the government taking care of people beyond skilled nursing. Mm. Right. So um, in the next five years, you're seeing the effect, especially with the COVID, it has advanced telemedicine, telehealth. Oh, yes. And and the home health, uh, the pressure that you see in the next five years, and how it's going to transform. But you, Dan, if you could fill in this blank, 10 years from now, I will have made healthcare blank. What is that? I will, I will have, it, it's not so much healthcare. <clears throat> um, I will, I will tell you a little story here. Um, when I first got into this business, they, there were patients, but when you're in skilled nursing, uh, you know, I think at the acute hospital, you go in, you have your heart transplant or your kidney gets fixed and they take care of you for a, a little bit amount of time. And then they ship you out. When I get a patient, most of my patients now, I get for the rest of their life, okay? In my particular area, I I don't have a lot of people coming and going. It's not that kind of hospital. I, uh, I, will, I will tell you a story, and it's in the book. Um, I met a lady in my first hospital, and she was a British lady, and she used to tell me how she was in the British Army in World War II, and she was Lord Manbotten's driver. And she conned me into every now and then we would have a gin and tonic because uh, the doctor said she could have one. And we would sit out in the backyard of the facility and we'd have a gin and tonic. And she'd tell me war stories of how she drove Lord Mountbatten around in India in World War II. And I thought, what a charming old British lady. And isn't that wonderful? And then one day, and I've seen this time and time again, a lot of times, one day I went out to see her and she said, you know, I'm tired, I'm done. And she stopped eating. And I said, come on, you know, what are are you doing here? We got it. No, I'm done. And two weeks later, she passed away. And I've seen that so many times and it's bizarre. They just decide life is over and it is. And I was, and I, because she became sort of my friend, I cleaned out all her stuff. Well, guess what? She really was Mom Patton's driver in World War II. <laughs> and he had, there was a letter in there from him, and they gave her a some sort of commentation, and I found a way to get a hold of her family in England, and I sent all her stuff. So where are you going to be in five years in the healthcare business is, is a different question than I would answer. I, you know, your mother is there at the beginning of your life. And for a lot of people, I'm there at the end. And how I treat the individual people is the average stay, I guess, in a skilled nursing is what, 18 months, and then people pass on. That 18 months is, whether it's now or five years from now, I want that to be as good an 18 months as it could be, you know, because usually uh, most of us, we have, we spend more money on healthcare in the last two years of our life than we do the whole rest of it. Um, And like with this lady, uh, that little gin and tonic, she so enjoyed it. 
And, mm. and, and I, there are a lot of those kind of stories where it was me and nobody else. She had no other family, was never married, mm. never had children. So I became her family. And if that can continue, I mean, at the end, I mean, one of the things right now about COVID that I think is so terrible is people are dying and they, and they can't see their family. The hospital won't let them in. And so they die by themselves. And there are plenty of nurses that are holding their hand of people that are passing away and they have to be the surrogate for you leaving this earth. And, uh, I can't speak for you, but I, you know, when it's my turn to jump off the planet, I hope I have somebody there waving goodbye, you know? So that's, that's where I see healthcare uh, in my particular aspect going, because I'm not going to invent the latest whatever or create a new drug, but uh, I, but then my job is saying is very important because you're providing dignity and humanity, um, for for our older people, right? Yes. So, and that's amazing. The story that um, your friend told, where you know we all lead amazing lives. We may not realize it, but you know there there are moments of. So we all lead amazing lives, and you're able to dare to discover that. And I think that's one of the things that we want to do here. We don't need to share those stories, whether it's your story or your friend's story that's told through you, right? Because we all mm-hmm. have a role here. While we're while we're here on planet Earth, and I think it's to help facilitate that community and enriching everybody's lives. So I think well, thank you very much for providing that service that you do. Um, You're welcome. Uh, let's talk about your book. Where's okay. my mother's flag? Okay, tell me, tell me the inspiration and 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 share one or two tidbits. Of, the title. Uh, the title. Where's my mother's leg is what a woman said to me. I mean, everything in the book, even though it's a novel, I will have to put the disclaimer here. None of it really happened, but all of it really happened. You know, Um, (laughs) one day a, a woman came in to me and she stood akimbo and she looked at me and she said, where's my mother's leg? And, and I just like in the book, I said, isn't it on your mother? She said, no. And we then found out that when we sent prosthesis to the hospital, which is what happened, we sent her out to the hospital, the hospital usually loses the prosthesis. So, after losing a couple, we decided don't send them. And everything in that book I have experienced and it, 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 I can't make this stuff up. I really can't make this stuff up. Uh, it, it, another story. Yeah. The, the, when I first got to the building where I am now, this is 10 years ago, that one of those first days, I went into my office and there was a naked guy sitting in my chair going through my desk that I hadn't even gotten to yet. And he was quite, you know, he he said he was the general manager of Post or General Mills and he was in charge of Cocoa Puffs. And he's sitting there buck naked, you know, and on the floor are all his paraphernalia his clothes and under the clothes and all this kind of stuff and i thought how am i going to do this how and i remember he was going through my drawers just like it says in the book and he found a pair of reading glasses and i hadn't even got settled yet 
So everything in that book, which is, I hope, hilarious, I've gotten very good reviews on it. And people say I laugh out loud when I read it. But that's what I experience. And you can't you can't make this stuff up. But I had fun writing the book. And the best part of of the, I thought I was done with Ned. Ned Ned is the uh, the protagonist in the book, but when COVID nineteen started, it I thought I have to. Th- this is too rich mm-hmm. a territory not to mine. So the the next book is going to be a very COVID Christmas. As we close up the the podcast, I want to close with the um, you know, you're an author um. I like reading Malcolm Gladwell because he he does research into social sciences. He wrote a book called Blink, which essentially says that often your gut feeling or your instant judgment is more efficient than your conscious deliberation. So let's put your Blink instincts to test. All right, Dan? (laughs) So whatever first thought that comes into your mind, just answer it, please. All right. What would you say is your chief characteristic? My chief characteristic... I hope it's empathy because nice. in, in the job that I have, that is, that is absolutely a key. What do you appreciate most in your friends? That they're there, especially now that they're not, um, you know, it's lovely talking to somebody on the phone, but it's not like giving a hug to somebody. Uh, you know, it's not like meeting them and Hey, let's go do this. And let's, the world now is lonely. I've become a gardener because instead of going out for breakfast on Saturday, I, you know, grow tomatoes. It's not the same. It's not the same. What is your idea of happiness? I used to think happiness was the absence of pain. Now I understand that happiness is something that you have to generate in yourself, regardless of the situation. We are living in a terrible world right now. We really are. This COVID, especially my end of it. I mean, I deal with death and dying every day with this COVID thing. And I have to find a way to be happy. And what I do is, you know, look at the bright side of life. Uh, And there is always the bright side of life. There is, you know, a 90 year old woman who survived, you know, two months on an incubator, you know, and a ventilator. And yeah. And so you have to say, yes, I don't try and answer the great questions of life. The why, the why COVID, why me kind of questions. I uh, happiness is kind of you're in the moment live in the moment and and find the joy of the moment, regardless of what that joy may be. Lovely. Lovely. Uh, Conversely, what's your idea of misery then? Well, misery is adopting all the badness around you and, and, and Mm -hmm. taking it in. I I mean, if, if when that lady from public health said to me, you have to get body bags, I mean, at first it just rattled me. And then I realized, well, from her perspective, it's something that has to happen. If I dwelled on it, uh, because I know people that just couldn't keep going in skilled nursing and, you know, and they've quit because it's just too heartbreaking now. And 
in lieu of that, I say, no, we're doing something that's important. I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at the bad side. I'm just not going to do it. And I don't, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here with you doing a podcast. Um, I've written a book. I'm writing another book in the middle of this, this horrible disease that's swallowing up the whole country. But there's, there are things I have no control over and to dwell on them. What for? I'm going to control the things that I can control and push the things that I can't control out of my life. That's a great philosophy because also in business world, there are things that we need to focus on and we can only control what we can control and not really um, wallow in the other stuff. Um, So aside from Ned, your protagonist, who's your favorite character in fiction? Um, Oh gosh. You, You mean in all of fiction? Books, movies, fiction, anything. Oh, right. It, it's got to be Bruce Willis in, um, what was the one where Nakatomi, he was like the greatest Die character. Hard. <laughs> yeah, they, they, yes. I must have seen that movie 500 times, and I love it. It's just wonderful. He had such a terrific attitude. Um, and when I started writing the book, It was very interesting. Uh, There's a movie I love, even though it has nothing to do with me, but I love the movie. It's called Michael Clayton. And uh, George, uh, what's George's last name? The, um, I forgot George's last name, but he's the protagonist of Michael Clayton. And he's a very dark, grim character. And then about, I don't know, 75, 80 pages into the book. I fired George, George Clooney, George Clooney. And I hired Tom Hanks to be my, to be Ned. Okay. And when I, that's, I mean, you know, when you're writing a book, you're the producer, the director, you're everything. And when I hired Tom Hanks, I thought, I like this book much better. You know, it is not a downer. It's an upper. And uh, yeah. So Bruce Willis in, in uh, the, that diehard movie never gave into it. I mean, regard him with all these bad guys chasing him all around and he does all these amazing things. And he always had, you know, a very good attitude about everything. Right. So that's my, I I can also see it's just based on our conversation. I feel like I I see that character in you as well. You're always thinking positive and you're moving forward and you're connecting with people. So the final question I have for you is what life lesson would you like to share with the next generation? Ooh, uh, the, for the next group coming up, it, you know, it's interesting. I was the generation that at 12 o'clock on Friday, we had air raid drills and we used to have to get in under our desks, duck and cover. Like that was going to stop a megaton hydrogen bomb from right the folks now are facing the kids now coming up are facing a very different world. And again, having now experienced for the first time in my life, loneliness on a, on a massive group scale, um, they've, they've got to find a way they've got to look past the moment Someday we're going to wrangle COVID and, but there'll be another COVID of some sort. There'll be, there's always something. 
and they have to understand that the, the most important things in life are the little things and you, that you can boil down to love, friendship. I miss being with my friends. And of course, not only do I have the, uh, you know, am I a COVID-19 person, but I work with it. So I'm really like carrying the black plague around with me, even though I get tested every week. Hmm. But still, I, you know, there, we don't see each other and we talk on the phone, but I can hear in their voice, something's missing. And I would say you cannot have enough connection to other people. Do everything you can to understand the other guy's point of view. Don't be judgmental. Understand that all of us have a story to tell. We all have bizarre backgrounds or we don't. And and try and see the world from that point of view. Respect people. Respect yourself. And give give a little slack to everybody you meet and we'll have a better world for that. And that, and that at the end of the day is really what we're trying to do here is uh, have a better world. Dan DeStefano, television writer, author, administrator of Burlington Convalescent Hospital. Thank you very much for joining us and keep making healthcare personal. Thank you. 